The sermon text reading is from Mark 8, verses 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I am particularly excited about uh, this week because we come to the what's sometimes referred to as the hinge of Mark's gospel, the halfway point. We've been doing this for eight or nine months now. We're halfway there. And this week and next week are, are what are called the hinge passages. And that's because for the first eight chapters, Mark has been asking this question. Who is Jesus? What's he all about? Right? And in, in, in the second part here, we heard Peter's confession. You're the Christ. And so finally, in the mouths of the disciples, we, we get the answer to the first eight chapters. Who is Jesus? He's the king. And then what we're going to see next week in kind of the, the second half of the hinge is answering this question, or beginning to answer this question, that is, but what kind of king is he? And the last eight chapters are all about that. Okay, if he's king, what kind of king is he? But I'm really excited because today we get to come to this critical point of confession. And one of the things that we're going to realize along the way today is it's a slow process. It is a slow realization. It's taken eight chapters to get here, but it's a critical realization. The most critical confession of your lives, if you're a follower of Christ, the most critical confession you can make is the confession that Peter made today. You're the Christ. You're the King. You're the Lord. You're the Lord of everything. But how do we get there? How how do we arrive at this confession? How do we go from a place of blindness to seeing finally? After all this time. Well, to get there, I've got three things for you this morning that we're going to look at. Uh, First, I want you to see how it happens. It's really important. I think there's more in that for us than anything else today, is how it happens. And secondly, why it's so critical. Why is this confession so critical to our lives? And then how does it actually change us? If we make that confession, how does it change? So let's begin here at the beginning, and that is how it happens. Now, if you've been with us for a series of weeks here, you'll know this, that we've been talking about these cycles, right? So we said chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Mark's gospel are one of these cycles. So remember, how does it begin? The feeding of what? The 5,000, right? And then remember what happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. There's conflict with the religious authorities, followed by another miracle. Now this one is not of a blind man seeing, but of someone who is deaf and mute. All of a sudden being able to speak and to hear for the very first time. Right. And then what happens? Remember what we said this a few weeks ago, that when you begin chapter eight, clearly Jesus is saying, didn't take. Got to do it all over again. Enter the second cycle. Right. The feeding of the what? Four thousand this time. So it's a different one, but it's the same idea. Feeding of the four thousand followed by more conflict with the religious authorities. This time we're going to throw in the disciples as well with their unbelief. Right. And then we come to today's passage followed by the confession. And what I want to show you today is how you can't separate the blind man being able to see from the confession of Peter. 
They belong together, and I'm going to show you why, and I'm going to show you how. Now remember, last week when Mike preached, the very last verse, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 21, Jesus says, it was one of seven questions, it was the last one. Remember what he said? He says, how do you still not understand? And earlier he actually said, are you still blind? So remember, this is sort of a tipping point. They're left with all these questions, and then suddenly we come to verses 23 through 25. Let me read this to you again. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, oh, here we go again, (laughs) and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, first time we we saw this, again, was this this deaf man who who had uh, spit in his ears. Remember that one? A little spit in the ears. Now, I, I didn't answer the question for you because it's come up again. I wanted to wait. I knew this was coming up. Why in the world does Jesus use spit? Okay? Now, I've looked at a ton of commentaries. I've listened to sermons on this, and here's the answer. No one knows. Right? You know, you know, you're waiting for the answer. Like, ah, oh, there must be a reason why. No one knows. Like, this is just one of those mysteries. Like, there was folk medicine back in the day, you know, where people thought they had medicinal value. But, but you know, it was just folk medicine. Who knows? So, here we come to Jesus. And normally, if someone spits in your eyes, it's an insult. But, you know, here's the blind man. Now, we're told in verse uh, 22 that it's in a place called Bethsaida. Bethsaida was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, this is the last time... We're going to be on the shores of Galilee until after the resurrection. Jesus is about to leave his place, as it were, where he's been doing ministry for roughly eight chapters now. But in the village of Bethsaida, he takes this man by the hand and he leads him out of the village because he wants to have an intimate moment alone with him. He's not doing this for for putting on display power or something like that. This is for him. Right? So he takes him by the hand. And can you imagine? Like, you can't see. You have no idea what's about to happen. Suddenly you hear this, you know, kind of thing? Like, you said, no way! Did he really do that? Well, I can't guarantee that's how it happened. But what I can't tell you, the next thing that happened is, there's spit in his eyes. Right? And, and, and what we're told here in the text is that it's only a partial take. Now, it's already weird that it's spit. But it gets weirder Because Jesus, the one who walks on water, the one who calms those those storms and the waves, only gets it partially done this time. That should beg a question for you. Why? Why in the world could the one who made the heavens, the one who spun the stars into the sky, why does it say here in the text, well, how's it going? Did it work? Well, I see people, they look like trees walking around. By the way, this is the original version of the Ents. A lot of you didn't get that. That is such a shame on your part, not mine. right? Uh, for those of you who are saying, man, I've been waiting for another Lord of the Rings reference. You can hit the clock again, hit start uh, for the next one. Who knows when it will come, but you just heard another one here. That's where it comes from, by the way. The Ents, right? the original walking trees, right? Right, so this is, this is it. And, and what I want you to see is that nine times, nine times in just a few verses here, nine times, Mark uses the word seeing. You see, it's not just that, that a blind man got healed. But there's something that Mark is emphasizing here. Now, that's the setup for what's going to happen next. Mark is emphasizing over and over again about seeing. Now, 
Remember, we said this already before, but it bears repeating today. When you look at the gospel accounts, doesn't matter, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we know that everything that Jesus did wasn't recorded. In fact, John tells us that at the end of his gospel. He literally says, boy, there's not enough ink and paper in the world to write down all the things that Jesus did in three and a half years. So, that begs the question, why does any gospel writer include the scenes that they do? That's the key here. And why does Mark put these stories back to back? You say, well, because it happened right next, right? Not necessarily. What you see is that the next scene, they're in a different place. They're probably uh, three days minimum. This could have been weeks, depending on how they decided to get there. Uh, But multiple days. And so what was Jesus doing? Jesus was teaching, but we don't have that recorded. So why does Mark put these two things next to each other? And the answer is this. Let's look at verses 27 through 29 now. So we're now up in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, remember, we looked at those two cycles. Chapter 6, 7, and then 8, we see that pattern again. Let me show you another pattern. We're going to put this up on the screen here. It's a chart. And I want to say thank you, Mary Claire, for, for making this. In fact, she was the one who on Monday morning, as we go through this text together, and she immediately saw it. She's like, ah, wait, I see a pattern. I was like, you're right, you sure do. So here you go. In the first story here, the blind man, what do you have? You have a blind man. He's physically blind. But what do you have with the disciples? They're blind, literally. Last passage, Jesus says, are you still blind? Right? And then what do you get? You get partial sight. I see trees. I see people who look like trees walking around. Where do you see partial sight in this story? The second one with Peter. What is it saying? Well, who do people say that I am? Well, kind of like a a prophet, a, a teacher, a rabbi of some sort. Okay, that's partially right. Yeah, that's partially right. But is that the full story? No. Full sight, clearly being able to see that last verse there, verse 25 followed by the confession of Peter. Don't you see, what Mark is doing is he's telling a story. It's a literary device. But Mark is doing so much more than giving us a nice literary device. He was full of them, right? What is he doing here? Here's what I want you to hear. This is as much for us today as it was for the disciples 2,000 years ago. I want you to hear this. Mark these words. Spiritual growth is always slow. Let me say that again because it's so important. Spiritual growth is always slow. For those of you who are in the financial industry, you have any financial advisors in here? Or maybe you do something similar, that kind of work. You probably know some. A lot of us in here have a financial advisor, right? And what do they tell you about, about the stock market? What do they tell you about that? You never look year to year at the stock market. You, you don't want to do that, right? <laughs> this past year in particular, right? If you're looking at the, if you met with your financial advisor, they probably told you what they told everyone else. And that is, you're down, right? You're, you're down a certain percentage. It was a bad 22, that sort of thing like that. But then what do they tell you? They tell you right after that, but, but wait, wait, wait. Look at the whole picture. Look at, look at what we started with you back in you know, 2005, 18 years later. Look at where you're at. Look at your returns, your results. It was slow growth. It was slow growth. Yeah, there were bad years. 22 was a bad year. It was a down year. But it, the trajectory was this. I want to show you Two pictures here 
Okay? Now, th- th- these are two uh, symbols of the stock market. To give you an example, here's the first one. So you, what do you see there? You, you see general growth up. You, you see maybe a slight downturn at one point, but it's just like that, right? And a lot of people, when you, we see that image, that's what you think of a bull market. But let me show you another image, a bull market symbol. And I think this is more like us, right? What is, what is the difference between the first one and the second one? Look how jagged that line is. Look at that. Now, no one would say at the end of that graph there, no one would say, oh, you're not up. You're up. You're different. You're changed. There's growth. Right? But look at the difference here. You see, who does Mark focus on more than any other disciple in his accounts? It's Peter. Right? And we're not done by, with Peter by any stretch of the imagination. Wait till next week. Oh my gosh. You thought he was doing good this week. Wait till next week. He royally screws it up next week. And then he incredibly royally screws it up right on the eve of the crucifixion. Right? We'll get to that later. Right? But this is a guy who is up one day, down the next. Up one day, down the next. But what do you see in the trajectory of Peter's life? From the beginning when he was called as a fisherman on the shores of Galilee to this point, next week we see a jagged down, right? And then we see him up a few times. We see him down again to the crucifixion. What do you see after the resurrection in the book of Acts? Peter becomes the head of the church. This global movement, this explosive global movement of global Christianity, it begins with Peter. With Peter being sent out as an apostle, right? But even then, Peter struggles. Remember the racial bias that Peter has? The racism within his heart? It's got to be dealt with. Paul confronts him and he deals with it. Then what do we see? Peter, his life has changed because he writes down three epistles, three letters to the church that we now include in our New Testament Gospels. And then by tradition, we're told that shortly thereafter, he was crucified upside down because he was not worthy even of the crucifixion of his Savior. And I, I will, I'll tell you from my own life. I will tell you from my own life. I get that image of the up and down, up and down. I don't know about you, but man, that really applies to me. There are days as your pastor where I am feeling on the up and up. <laughs> like I'm feeling like, man, I feel changed. Like, oh my gosh, like I just I feel Jesus in my heart, I feel him revealing more of Himself to me. I've shared with you over the years that I've really grown the last five, six years and understand the kindness of God. Towards me, I didn't grow up in an environment where I was taught that. Um, it was really rough and hard. Just the, the kindness of God was something brand new for me. And so when I think about where I started here at City Church, when we started the church versus what I know now, like I'm changed on that way. But there are days when I feel more like an atheist, if I'm honest. Like when I mean, you know, I've said this before, like, you know, there are days when you can feel like a practical atheist, not theologically. But you're saying, but the way I live my life, it's as if God doesn't exist. There have been plenty of days like that. I've shared them here before. I go on vacation there's something in about being a pastor as, as your full-time work where sometimes the temptation, you just want to run the other way on vacation. You just want to vacate the premises of the church altogether, right? And those are, those, are, those are days when I'm not proud of those days when I just feel so disconnected from my own heart, disconnected from my own Savior. There are those days. But I want you to see something. Yes, is, is growth for our, our lives, is it slow? Yes, it is. But here's the second part of that. It's deliberate. It's deliberate. There's a trajectory. It's a guaranteed trajectory. If you're a follower of Christ, it is a guarantee. Further up, further in, as I like to say, quoting C.S. Lewis. And so what do you see? What, what has happened here? Where do, how do we get here? Here's the answer. Jesus has to touch you 
And He has to confront you. You know, we see that here in this passage. Right? Verse 21. Do you not understand? Followed by the touch here. And something clicks for Peter for the first time. As a representative for the disciples, all of them. Something clicks. And it's this touch, this confrontation. And suddenly his eyes are open. Look, all of us are blind spiritually. And I, I want you to make note of this. Note that who rightly confessed Jesus for who he was in the first eight chapters? No one. Not a single person got it right. Well, there's one exception. A demon. You know, think about it. chapter 3. Remember that story? You're the son of God. And remember what Jesus said? Hush. <laughs> Not now. I've got a lot more work to do. Don't let that out yet, right? But it was the demon who rightfully, and no one else understood who Jesus rightfully was. Look, that should humble you. It should humble your heart. How did you get here? Right? How did you get here spiritually? It was a gift. Your eyes were open. Salvation is a gift. Being able to see Jesus as, because as we're going to see beginning next week, He's not the kind of Messiah that you would expect. No one is looking for a Messiah like this. That's why He was hidden in plain sight, as it were. But remember, yes, it's a slow process. It's a deliberate process. Listen, this should also humble you, but also give you confidence. Philippians 1.6 says this, And I'm sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. We love to start things, but we don't always finish them. But Jesus is a finisher. Jesus finishes everything that He starts. And for you, if you're a follower of Christ today, He's far from done with you. You are just a pale image of what you're going to become. God willing, this side of heaven, but certainly in the new heavens and new earth. That should encourage your heart this morning. He who began a good work will complete it. It's a slow, deliberative process, but it is deliberative. It has a trajectory. Now, let me tell you why this matters so much. That's how it happens. It's slow. It's deliberate. But let me show you why it matters so much. Let's look at this confession again, the second half of our passage today. The, there are two confessions here, if you think about it. There's the, the confession, we call it that, the, the one of Peter. But there's actually the first confession. Remember, Jesus asked two questions. And the first question is, well, who do people say that I am? And what was the answer? The answer is, well, we think you're sort of like John the Baptist. Like, that's what we're hearing. Now, which is funny to think about because John the Baptist was living at the same time that Jesus was. So it's kind of like, ah, I'm not sure you understand this logically. Uh, how could that be? But anyway, but Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet of prophets from the Old Testament. And there was talk. There was talk in this uh, period of time before the time of Jesus. There was talk that maybe... Elijah would return. And people were beginning to say, man, he's like the prophet. And like, maybe we need that kind of prophet in our day. Some people thought John the Baptist was Elijah, but now he had his head removed from him. So maybe, maybe it's Elijah will return somehow. All right. That's what they're saying. Now, is it true that he's prophet? Yes. Is it true that he's a great teacher? Yes, he is. But that's only partial sight. Let me tell you, let me tell you, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. A little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Let me ask you this. If you were to uh, call an Uber driver and the Uber driver arrives and, and you get in the car and the Uber driver informs you and says, uh, hey, just so you know, I'm legally blind. Now, how many of you are going to continue to stay with that Uber driver in that car? Probably not many. It's, it's actually illegal to drive if you're legally blind. 
and some rare exceptions, but, you know, generally speaking. And it makes sense because everything, including stop signs, look like trees, right? <laughs> kind of thing. You follow where I'm going with this like that? And so, so if you are completely blind, like, like there's a, a friend of mine in college, he was completely blind, been blind from birth. And, uh, and he had friends. He would, he would help them take him around campus. He was completely dependent upon others at times to cross roads on our campus in college, right? And, and so he had a sense of, of complete dependence. Like, he would never think his name was Daniel. Daniel would never think, oh, I think I could drive a car today. But if you're legally blind, you say, well, I can see. Not very well, but I can see. Maybe I can do this. Who's more dangerous? Partial sight. You see, that's the problem with our world today. If you think that Jesus was a wonderful prophet and a wonderful teacher, you will keep him at arm's length. You'll say to yourself, hmm, he's got some good things to say here about the poor and the powerless. I love it when he speaks truth to power. Love it. Keep going, Jesus. Love it when you do that. Oh, oh, you think you're the Lord of my life? So we're going to... Pick and choose. It's like going to the cafeteria. You know, I love going to the cafeteria growing up. Like, uh, not in my schools much. That food was terrible. But there were other places uh, where the food was dynamic. You know, a place called First Cafeteria. It's out in Texas where I was born. And, uh, and man, I just loved, oh, a little steak here, a little potatoes over here, a little vegetable. No, nah, not so much the vegetables as a kid. But, you know, like there's, you could pick and choose and especially go heavy on the dessert, right? You could pick and choose the things that you like that you want to embrace. And that's the picture of danger. It's a little knowledge of Jesus. And what Peter says is, no, no, no. You're more than that. You're more than a rabbi. You're more than a prophet here. Right? How many of you yesterday watched the coronation of King Charles? Right? You don't actually have to raise your hands. Uh, the Brits, of course, in our place too. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, of course. So you guys think you have history. Like, by the way, King Charles is the 40th king since 1066. And we go, well, we've had like 40 plus presidents in 250 years. The Brits are like, whatever. You guys don't know your history. Like, we got history here. We got kings. And, and one of the things that happened yesterday with King Charles, I don't know if you saw it, but, but, but he was anointed. Like, he was anointed with oil by the head of the church. And that's been happening for all the kings and queens who take the throne of England. And the reason why that's important, I'm saying that now, is because of what Peter says here. Now, Peter says, you're the Christ. Now, the word there in the Greek is Christos, and that's translated from the original the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah, which sounds a little bit like Messiah, Messiah. And, and what would happen in the kings of Israel is they would all be anointed. So to be Messiah means to be anointed, to be a king. But all the kings of Israel were simply precursors. All the kings of Israel were symbols of the true king to come. And so notice here, Peter doesn't say, oh, you're a Christos. You're a Messiah. He says, no, you're the Messiah. Because he understood as a Jew. He understood that there was a Messiah who would come. Now, here's the key. Now, I want you to really understand what is the significance of, of Peter for the first time making this confession. There are three things that make up the Messiah. Very important here to understand. Three things that they're looking for in the Messiah. Number one, that restored the temple and its power. That the temple, the glory of God, the manifestation of the glory of God on earth would be once again made manifest in the temple. Right? And so the Messiah would restore the, the grandeur, the glory. But here's the key. He would restore the identity of Israel. 
He would, we would, we would finally, as Jewish people, we'd finally come into the fullness of who we are as God's people. And we would see that our identity is, is really caught up in the temple and the glory and that we know who God is and therefore we know who we are. And so it would be the restoration of identity of the people of God. Restoration of the temple number two, he would defeat the enemies of God. So when the Messiah comes, all the enemies of God will be defeated. Now, of course, at the time of, of uh, the disciples 2,000 years ago, they were primarily are thinking about who? The Romans, right? And we're going to come to that next week because that's important. But primarily, they understood that, that, that no one could stand before God if they're an enemy. No one could stand before God. That God will defeat his enemies. And here's the last one. God's justice will be restored. God's justice in the places of injustice, in the places of powerlessness, in the places of, of evil and unrighteousness, God's justice will be restored. Now, I want you to remember that, these three things. I want you to remember that because we'll come back to that here in a second to close. Restoration of identity, the defeat of God's enemies, and then the power of God on display here through God's justice. So as we prepare to close, I want to ask you this question. Same question that the disciples were asked to ask you. Who do you say that he is? Who, you know, is he just a, he, he saved you from sin? If you're a Christian, you say, I know he saved me from sin. But the picture of the Messiah is something bigger than that. It's someone who restores the order of things. The one who spun the stars into the skies will once again bring about justice in the places of injustice. I love what you know, Dr. King has said, right? The moral arc of the universe, it tends towards justice. There's this picture that Dr. King had, and there's this picture that we should hold on to, that the narrative arc, as it were, the story of God, is to one day bring justice to places of injustice. And so every Jewish, faithful Jewish believer believed that that was part of who the Messiah was. So who do you say that he is? It's a question for us today. We're going to come back to that here in just a second. But let me, let me just show you one last picture here of why it's so important. I don't know if you have any Flannery O'Connor fans in here. Um, uh, you know, Southern Gothic literature. Yes, I see that fist from Jim. Yeah, I knew I get that from you, my friend. Um, but Flannery O'Connor was a brilliant writer. She wrote um, about 70 years ago a wonderful short story, her most well-known work, called A Good Man is Hard to Find. A good man is hard to find. And there's a character named the Misfit. Now, the Misfit was an uh, escaped murder convict. And in the story, it's a family from Atlanta, actually. And there's another uh, character named the Grandmother. And the Grandmother does not want to go to Florida on vacation with the rest of the family because uh, she heard that the Misfit is on the way to Florida. Now, in the short story, of course, what happens? Because it's the writer. <laughs> they make sure that said family, Grandmother and family, end up running into the Misfit. And everything would have been fine. In, in the hollers of central Georgia, had it not been the fact that she identified who the misfit was. And once identified, the misfit and the accomplices were like, there can't be no witnesses. And so one by one, remember, this is southern Gothic literature. There's a lot of blood. <laughs> one by one, he begins to execute them. Now, the grandmother's watching this. She hears the gunshots. And she's desperately trying to, to save her life. And the misfit's alone with her on the road, where the car's gone off, that's how they end up there with misfit in the ditch. And, and, and she begins to moralize with the misfit. She begins to say, be a good boy. Be, be good. Be moral. This is not the sort of life that you really want for your... You know, and they begin to talk about Christianity, actually. 
She was a devout Catholic. And so they began to, to debate a little bit here about, about who is Jesus. And, and she's like, turn yourself to Jesus. And this is what the misfit says in response. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. And he shouldn't have done it. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to, to throw everything away and follow him. And if he didn't, there's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. It was very clear which direction the misfit chose. But the moralistic grandmother was confused in the story. And so I want to lay before you here as we close, last point, and that is what do we do with this? Remember that confession. How you answer that confession changes your life, or it should. It differentiates you. Let me show you how it differentiates. By the way, before I say that and show you that, let me just say that the rest of Mark's gospel is about discipleship. It's about, well, if he's king... And he's this kind of king. And if we're disciples, we're this kind of disciple. That's what you're going to see beginning next week on the other side of this confession. Now, here's where I close. How does it change us? Remember what I said about the Messiah. Remember the three things? Restore identity through restoration of the temple. Remember that? Second, defeat the enemies and bear justice. Guess what? That's what discipleship is as well. Right there on our wall, we have our, our vision statement, right? Joining God's family on mission for the renewal of all things. But remember at our annual vision dinner, we said this is a special one because we, for the very first time, have created a mission statement. Our mission statement is really about discipleship. It's to grow people to love Atlanta, right? Remember this, that they might love Jesus. To grow people to, to love Atlanta through the power of Jesus. That is about making disciples. And those three things are about discipleship. Here's the first one. You must know who you are. Remember? The restoration of the temple, the restoration of the identity of God's people. What did Paul say about the temple? Remember what he said? He said, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit lives in you? 1 Corinthians 3.16. The temple has moved in. Right? And so it's changed our identity. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And elsewhere in the book of Romans, remember what Paul says there, that we've been crucified, we've been brought down into his death and been raised up a new life. If you're a follower of Christ, you have a new identity. And so the very thing that the Messiah is first about is the first thing we're about as his disciples. And the second thing, the defeat of the enemies of God, where do we see that in our lives? Isn't that the whole of the Christian life? What does Paul say? We do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood, right? We don't wrestle against Republicans or Democrats against the woke or the unwoke, the canceled or the uncanceled. Remember, what does he say? We wrestle against what? The spiritual powers. That's our true enemy. And it frustrates me to no end. I've said this so many times. It frustrates me to no end how much of our lives are caught up with wrestling against flesh and blood. And what Paul says, no, you're missing it. The whole of the Christian life it's about the death of the death of death within us, as John Owen the Puritan said. It's about seeing the mortification of our, our flesh, which means the death of sin within us. That yes, the gospel has redeemed us. Death, hell itself has no hold on us. But hell wants to trip us up along the way. And the whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life, is daily, over and over and over again, turning to the death of sin in Jesus Christ. And saying, may it be so in my life, in my sexuality, 
in my economics, in my relationships, may I see Jesus glorified on His throne within my life. And so the second part of what it means to be the Messiah means to defeat the enemies. And now through the power of Christ, we see sin defeated in us. That's the whole of our life. But here's the last thing. We bear justice. See, the first two things are about the inner world. Who am I? Right? And, and, and how shall I, I, um, I live pietistically, let's say. But the outward one, taking it outward is the turn into our city to bear justice. Look, here's what justice means. Justice means to bring flourishing of God's life wherever it needs to be found. That's the simple definition of justice. Is to look into our world, not just in places of the poor or the places of less power in our city to the marginalized, but to all places within our city. To bring the justice of God, to bring the flourishing of God. And all of us, regardless of who we are, all of us bear within ourselves the power of Christ to bring the flourishing of Jesus to the nations. And so my hope and my prayer for us, as we turn to the second half of Mark's gospel moving forward, is that we'll learn what does it then mean to walk in Jesus as his disciples. If you're king, what kind of king are you? If you're that kind of king, what sort of disciple am I? So may the Lord bless us and keep us as we turn our face towards Him and as we turn our face towards to our Messiah, to our King, King of kings and Lord of lords. May He bless us. Let me pray now. Father, we thank You for this hinge. We thank You for this turning point in Your story. We thank You that we see that it's right and good and possible to rightly confess You. Now, may our lives reflect that. May in the private corners of our life, may it look more and more like Jesus. May we look more and more more like the Messiah himself. Thank you for this confession. May we be a church of the confession. May we be a church who, with integrity, lives out the confession for the nations, for our city, for those who are not yet our brothers and sisters, but those that we long for to know you the way that we have come to know you. Lord, do we know it's a strange journey at times. Lord, do we know it's methodical and slow, but it is deliberate. But he who began a good work will complete it. So, Father, we long for more of that further up and further in. We pray this name, Jesus. Amen.